Hello everyone, and welcome to the December 2023 episode of Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire. We've got an absolutely packed show for you this month. In the single origin brew, we'll hear from 2023 Nobel laureate in chemistry, Professor Munji Bowendi from MIT, about how he came to do astrochemistry research during his PhD before transitioning to the work on quantum dots that earned him this year's accolades. We'll also sit down for a coffee chat with Abby Wagner from the University of Virginia about her quest to probe time-domain astrochemistry and protoplanetary disks. This is an interview that was recorded at the 10 Years of Alma conference held at the beginning of the month in Puerto Varas, Chile. We've got a bunch of interviews with astrochemists there that we'll be bringing you over the next several episodes. We'll, of course, also have our usual grab-and-go tour through the literature. And this month, we'll also stop off at Barista Boot Camp to learn how to make one of our favorite brews, silicon monoxide. But first, let me tell you that today's Cup of Joe is four Starbucks Blonde Roast Nespresso Capsules brewed into a single mug. I got these on sale at Kroger a few months back, and I gotta say they're pretty great. There's a pleasing crema and a smooth, balanced flavor to the espresso itself with just a hint of a lighter bite at the end. In today's coffee chat, Abby Wagner tells us all about her program to measure chemistry occurring in, essentially, real time in protoplanetary disks. I caught up with Abby, who's a senior graduate student at the University of Virginia, at the 10 Years of Alma conference. Yeah, I did come to graduate school knowing I wanted to do astrochemistry, but it was actually a really long process. Um, So when I started out, I wanted to uh, become a biochemist and go into oncology. It's a very stereotypical pathway for chemists. And uh, I realized really fast that I don't like biology all that much. Understood. Um, And then um, I slowly started to realize, like once I got further into the chemistry program, that I really loved the physical parts of chemistry. So like specifically spectroscopy was like what made me realize like this is what I want to do the rest of my life. This is the coolest thing ever. And so um, I was talking to my research advisor about it in undergrad. It's Dr. James Poole. He's at, I think, St. Cloud University now. He's amazing. But um, I was talking to him about it, and he just, like, gave me a list of different REU programs to look at. And uh, there was an astrochemist on that list. It was Ben McCall at uh, Illinois. And so then I was like, hold on. This is a thing. And I started reading into it. And... It's actually Karin Oberg's research that made me want to start going into it more. Um, it was like reading about the work that they were doing and how all the things I loved about the physics of chemistry is suddenly like being explored on like these insane scales of space and like these weird molecules that shouldn't exist but they do. Things that like disobey the regular rules of chemistry. I I started to really love it and um, that's when I was really lucky and I got into an REU program and worked with Ilsa as my current Ah, advisor. Okay, okay. Yeah, so... This was at NRAO, or...? uh, No, this was at um, uh, CFA, so So it was... Well, she was still at CFA Mm -hmm. as a postdoc. Yeah. You were her RU student. Yeah, I was her RU student. That's cool, okay. And then she she recruited me from there. Awesome. (laughs) And I pretty much knew I was going to go to Virginia for grad school once she knew she was going there, because she's so amazing to work with. Well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Wait, so, okay, 
are, does that mean you are in the chemistry department at UVA? Yes. Okay, yep. but you are doing, and we'll talk about it in a second, I know you're doing some observational research, right? Yes. <laughs> so how did you go from chemistry to doing actual observational astronomy research? Did you just say, Ilsa, yeah. I want to do observations, or how um, that work? Admittedly, she kind of pushed me into it. That, well, that's great. <laughs> um, I, I really enjoy it now, though. It's a good thing. Um, I started off doing chemical modeling. So okay. the first steps uh, into astrochemistry were much more clear because I started off doing, like, uh, rate equations and, like, figuring out, like, uh, like figuring out reaction pathways, basically. Um, and then once that project kind of started to wrap up, we were realizing we need to look for observational evidence of this. Uh -huh. And so naturally, I had to become an observer. Uh, so here I am. Awesome. That's fantastic. Okay, so one of the, the questions that astrochemists usually get asked the most by people that aren't astrochemists is, are you actually watching chemistry happen in real time? And of course, uh. our answer is almost always, well, no, right? The chemistry, <laughs> the sources we're looking at, they evolve over tens of thousands of years, right? Much longer than a... a, a graduate student lifetime, quite literally, right? But you are actually watching chemistry evolve in real time in space. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we're hoping to look at it in real time in space. Uh, we haven't successfully done it yet, um, but that's because we haven't had a designated program to do it, but we do now. Um, so yeah, my research is specifically looking at how stellar variability is impacting the chemistry around planet forming regions. Okay. And so when a star flares, so we have solar flares now, it's the same thing uh, in younger disk systems except they're baby stars or titari stars. Um, and that those flares dramatically increase ionization rates in the disk. And so my research is figuring out how does that happen. And so, yeah, my observations have been, can we see this happening in real time? And at this point, I've used a lot of like uh, serendipitous uh -huh. data sets where some other people have observed things, I've taken their data, and I've been like, can I find variability in this? Uh -huh. Answer is maybe sure. <laughs> we found some tentative variability, but we have a program coming up this month, actually. Nice. I'm so excited. That's really exciting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, where we're actually doing a coordinated observations between Chandra. Uh, Alma and the NGVLA and the HET, which is the Hobby Everly Telescope. Okay. Uh, so what do each of those give you that you're looking for? Yeah, so Chandra is kind of like the, the head of the project. Chandra is surveying X -ray, the X-ray regime and looking yeah. for stars that are actively flaring. Okay. Uh, the HET does optical astronomy, so it's going to be looking at um, like accretion and magnetic fields, things like that. Um, and then the NGVLA is going to be looking at the star itself. Um, so, and then my project with Alma is going to be looking at the HCO plus gas. Um, I think we, we have a few other lines in there as well, but HCO plus is the main target. Um, and so together, all of these telescopes, we're hoping to catch the post-physics and flare after the physics, chemistry and physics post-flare to see how do these stars are impacting the planet-forming regions of chemistry and everything else. Okay. And so the idea is once you see a flare in the X-ray, you're hoping to see a change in the column density of HCO+. Plus then, yes, as a that is the hope and goal. Of, okay. We're, uh, we actually have uh, approval to look at four different disks. Okay. Um, and then we also are going to revisit those four disks a total of five times. 
so we can hopefully actually catch the decay or the yep. real-time chemistry happening. Oh, that's super cool. So, yeah. What, what are the time scales that you think this might be happening on? Is this like minutes, hours, days, weeks, all about, of the above? Yeah, about weeks, all of okay. the above. So the, we kind of find that the initial increase is very rapid. So. Yeah. We hope our first observation window will happen about two days after the flare. Okay. That is a very uh, positive, optimistic sure. <laughs> hope. Um, but after that, we're visiting about every week or two after that. Uh, and those time scales are all based off the models that I previously run. Awesome, awesome. Well, we look forward to hearing the updates from that and the next time I see you. Uh, Last question, though. We are literally at a coffee break here at the conference. Yes. So what's your favorite cup of coffee? How do you take your oh what is the best one you ever had to go to, oh, all man. that sorts of stuff? I, I really love a latte with oh, oat choice. milk specifically. Um, I love the frothed milk, and admittedly, yeah. I like to put a little bit of honey in it, too. Oh, nice. It's unusual, okay. but I read a book as a child, and yeah. the main character always put honey in his coffee. And I tried it as an adult, and I, it's, it's really good. Nice. I, I discovered cardamom in coffee from the same oh way. Oh, my god. There's a book with one of the main villain, actually. Always put cardamom in the bottom of the yes. coffee. Yes. There's uh, actually a, a board gaming conference that happens in Indianapolis every year. Is this um, Gen Con? It is Gen Con. Okay. Um, my brother and I, well, my brother goes every year. I go oh. when I can. But they have, a, there's a local coffee place. I don't remember its name off the top of my head. But they have a Dragon's Breath coffee okay. every year. And it has card cardamom and chili powder in it. Oh, it's, wow. Okay. That's probably the best single coffee I've ever had. And now, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by the all-new 2024 Dream Diver mattress from Nap Nirvana. You know how it is. You're sipping your fifth espresso of the day. Your brain is buzzing like a bee in a bonnet. And you're pretty sure you can see sounds. But then you hit the Dream Diver. This isn't just a mattress, folks. It's like a sleep magician that turns your caffeine jitters into Z's. Its patented snooze tech layers work like a charm, absorbing all your coffee-fueled energy and flipping it into the most tranquil, serene sleep you have ever had. It's so effective we've heard reports of baristas dozing off mid-latte art hours after they've gotten up for their shift. And if you're worried about missing your morning alarm, don't be. The Dream Diver comes with a built-in, gentle wake-up feature that's smoother than your favorite latte. Say goodbye to sheep counting and hello to deep, dreamy dives into slumberland, even after a double-shot Americano. Try the Dream Diver mattress today and sleep deeper than a coffee bean at the bottom of a burlap sack. Now, if you mention code ASTROCHEM at checkout for 5% off, a 90-day free in-home trial, and a pound of deluxe extra-strength Starducks beans to really put the Dream Diver to the test, well, then they'll know we sent you there, and that helps us out too. This is the grab-and-go, because sometimes you just can't do more than skim the menu. We've got 10 fantastic publications for you from the last month. First up, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in samples of Ryugu formed in the interstellar medium, by Zeichner et al. in Science. Despite accounting for as much as maybe 25% of all carbon, the origin of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, remains an open question. 
This paper presents laboratory isotopic analyses of PAHs from Comet Ryugu, which were returned by the Hayabusa 2 mission in late 2020, as well as the Murchison meteorite. Based on their analysis, they conclude that the isotopic composition of the PAHs naphthalene, fluoranthrene, and pyrene are consistent with formation in the low-temperature environment of the interstellar medium, rather than in the high-temperature environments of a circumstellar envelope, whereas the signatures of phenanthrene and anthracene indicate formation in a higher-temperature environment. They discuss the various possible formation processes under the different temperature conditions and suggest that there may be a pattern of two- and four-ring PAHs forming in the cold ISM and three-ring PAHs forming in hot circumstellar environments. Number two, experimental study of the binding energy of ammonia on different types of ice and its impact on the snow line of ammonia and water by Kakampara Suresh et al. on the archive. The binding energy of molecules to surfaces can play an enormous role on the chemical and physical evolution of different regions, especially in protoplanetary disks. Molecules with higher binding energies often remain in the solid phase to higher temperatures, altering the location of crucial snow lines in disks. These binding energies are often significantly influenced by the composition and structure of the surface, meaning it's important to understand binding energies of molecules in relevant surface conditions. Now, this was a temperature program desorption study of ammonia on crystalline and amorphous water ices, among some others. In a TPD experiment, the temperature is gradually increased and the amount of different species leaving the surface at any given temperature is monitored, usually by mass spec. In this experiment, they found that ammonia is bound tighter than expected to water surfaces likely due to hydrogen bonding interactions. They posit that as a result, it will remain on ices closer to the central star in protoplanetary disks than otherwise would be expected, and that moves that ammonia snow line inward. Number three, the role of low energy, meaning less than 20 electron volts, secondary electrons in the extraterrestrial synthesis of prebiotic molecules by Wu et al. on the archive. When cosmic rays blast through interstellar ices, they can violently eject electrons from the molecules in those ices. And these secondary electrons, as they're called, can then trigger cascades of reactions and other processes within the ices. The present computational study here examines the relative importance of these secondary electron-driven reactions in ices, specifically looking at cold, dark, and dense interstellar clouds. They conclude that in these sources, the secondary electrons can contribute as much or even more to the chemical processing of ices than photons. Number four, atomium, molecular inventory of 17 oxygen-rich evolved stars observed with ALMA, by Wallstrom et al. on the archive to appear in A and A. Atomium stands for ALMA tracing the origins of molecules forming dust in oxygen-rich type stars. I'll let you figure out how to build that acronym from that one, folks. Anyways, Atomium is a large program that targets 17 Asymptotic Giant Branch, AGB, and Red Supergiant, RSG, stars that are known to have a oxygen-rich chemistry. There have been some prior Atomium overview papers and papers on individual sources, but this one presents the inventories toward all their sources and then performs correlation studies between the different detected chemical species. The paper presents those correlations, looks at some trends, and speculates on their implications for the chemistry and evolution of these sources in the context of these different molecular correlations. Number five, CN and CCH 
azarine derivatives, possible precursors of prebiotic molecules, formation, and spectroscopic parameters, by Redondo et al. in Munras. This paper focuses on some nitrogen heterocycles. These are molecules that have a carbon ring structure where one of the carbons has been replaced by a nitrogen. These species are ubiquitous in biology. Take, for instance, our DNA and RNA nucleobases, and so are of real astrobiological interest. Despite recent detections of a wealth of cyclic, aromatic, and polyaromatic molecules in the ISM, there have been no detections of nitrogen heterocycles. This paper looks at cyano and ethyl derivatives of azarine, a heterocycle that has been previously unsuccessfully searched for in space, in the hopes that maybe these derivatives will end up being detectable. They determine that several of the isomers of these species can form exothermically and barrierlessly under interstellar conditions, and then they provide high-level quantum chemical predictions for their spectroscopic constants. Number six, new light on the imbroglio surrounding the C8 H6 plus isomers formed from ionized azuline and naphthalene using ion molecule reactions by Rossi et al. in chemical physics. A critical aspect of PAH chemistry in space is their breakdown via photoprocessing by energetic photons. There have been conflicting reports on the primary photoproducts resulting from C2H2 loss from naphthalene and azuline ions, which this experiment aimed to address. They used the Soleil synchrotron to perform the experiments and found that the dominant product is the phenylacetylene cation. That suggests that this molecule is therefore a key target for follow-up studies and incorporation into astrochemical reaction networks. Number seven, single atom catalysis in space, computational exploration of Fischer-Tropsch reactions in astrophysical environments by Pereris et al. on the archive to appear in A&A. Interstellar grains are often invoked as important third bodies in interstellar chemistry. They can absorb the excess energy from highly exothermic reactions and stabilize the products so they don't immediately dissociate. So think things like radical-radical reactions. They can also serve as concentrators, trapping reactants in a much smaller volume and increasing the rate at which reactions can be attempted. What this paper examines is a third effect which has not seen as much attention, the role of the surface as a chemical catalyst that lowers the activation barrier for reactions. This should enable some that are exothermic but otherwise possess a kinetic barrier, an entrance barrier, to actually proceed. A variety of reactions are studied and the role of the surface in reducing or eliminating barriers in each case is discussed. Number 8. JWST observations of young protostars, JOYS+, plus. detection of icy complex organic molecules and ions 1, CH4, SO2, HCOO-, OCN-, H2CO, HCOOH, CH3CH2OH, CH3CHO, CH3OCHO, and CH3COOH, Pyroka et al. on the archive to appear in A and A. The JOYS program surveyed the ice signatures in more than 30 protostars using the MIRI MRS instrument on JWST. That's the mid-infrared instrument medium-resolution spectrograph. This particular paper presents looks at two sources from that sample, NGC 1333 IRAS 2A and IRAS 23385 plus 6053, which are low-mass and high-mass protostellar sources, respectively. 
They claim the detection of a number of complex molecules, which I rattled off in the title of the paper, and speculate on the implications for the formation of these species. They note that the abundances for the low-mass source, NGC 1333 IRS 2A, match those observed in Comet 67P quite well, and they talk about the implications for this match. Number nine, modeling CN Zeeman effect observations of the envelopes of a low-mass protostellar disk and a massive protostar by Mazay et al. in Munras. Magnetic fields are notoriously challenging to measure observationally, especially at protostellar scales where techniques examining, for example, dust grain alignment that are useful at much larger scales become ineffective or otherwise very challenging to carry out. One possible avenue to get around this is to use radio observations to study molecular emission undergoing the Zeeman effect. Zeeman effect is when an energy level of a molecule, in this case a rotational energy level, is very slightly split into two non-degenerate levels of different energies by the presence of a magnetic field. The degree of splitting is proportional to the strength of the magnetic field, and thus if that splitting can be observed, the magnetic field can be measured. This study is a computational one, examining whether this effect could be observed using the J equals 1 to 0 transition, the fundamental rotational transition of Cn. They calculate the degree of splitting in two prototypical environments, a low-mass disk envelope system and a disk wind in a massive protostellar envelope, using magnetohydrodynamic simulations and conditions typical of these sources. They predict that under some of these conditions, the splitting could be observed given the current capabilities of ALMA. And finally, number 10, detection of intact amino acids with a hypervelocity ice grain impact mass spectrometer by Burke et al. in PNAS. Saturn's icy moon Enceladus is a target of great interest in the search for potential extraterrestrial life. One of the most tantalizing indications that this may be an appealing location was the detection of complex organic molecules in the small icy plume particles that were collected by Cassini in its flyby of this moon. Now, questions have been raised as to the veracity of these detections, though, with a primary issue being whether amino acids and other complex organic species could even survive the very high impact velocities at which these species interacted with the instrument. This paper is an experimental one, presenting the results from the hypervelocity ice grain impact mass spectrometer. They showed that at velocities as high as 4.2 kilometers per second, amino acids trained in icy grains did survive intact to be detected by the instrument. Their results show the range of viability and inform the design of future missions. And that's your grab-and-go for the month. We can, of course, only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and in the Astrochemical Newsletter, which comes out monthly. You can find links to these websites as well as each of the papers in this month's grab-and-go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. If you have a paper you think we should include in next month's edition, shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a four to six sentence summary at coffee at astrochem.net. And now, a word from our sponsors. Welcome to 2024, folks. This year's first episode is also brought to you by Starduck's seasonal favorite resolution roast, the only coffee that guarantees to kickstart your New Year's resolutions, or at least keep you awake long enough to make a list. We know January can be tough. You've got holiday hangovers, forgotten resolutions, and a gym membership that's collecting more dust than that AeroPress you used once and tossed in the back of the cabinet after you tried the inversion method and flooded your kitchen counter and cutlery drawer with boiling hot water and coffee grounds. No one else did that? Just me? 
Mm. Anyway, fear not. Starduck's Resolution Roast is here to rescue you from the New Year slump. Brewed from the rarest beans, handpicked by night owls who understand your struggle, this blend is so potent it'll have you zipping through your to-do list faster than you can say Happy New Year. Did we mention it comes with motivational quotes on every cup? That's right. Sip your way to success with lines like, You can sleep when you're dead, but for now, there's coffee. And for those midnight moments when you're questioning your life choices, like signing up for that 5 a.m. yoga class, Starducks has got your back with its Midnight Motivator Espresso Shots. It's like a pep talk in a cup, but with more caffeine and less judgment. So raise your mugs and let's toast to a year of unchecked ambition, unrealistic gym routines, and the magical bean juice that'll power us through it all. Starducks, because what's a new year without a little coffee-fueled optimism? Now, folks, our espresso machine remains out of commission. We got the mocha issue sorted out, Kevin, but it seems a family of adorable hedgehogs took up residence in the drip trays while it was sitting on the shelves. While we get that sorted out, and by the way, does anybody want a small nuclear family of hedgehogs with a caffeine addiction? No? Well, in the meantime, we've got another incredible single-origin brew for you. Munji Bowendi is the Lester Wolf Professor of Chemistry at MIT and won the 2023 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery and synthesis of quantum dots. What you might not know, though, is that Munji spent a good chunk of his PhD years working on laboratory astrochemistry with Takeshi Oka at Chicago. I had a chance to sit down with Munji just days after he returned from the Nobel Prize ceremony. We talk about his time as an astrochemist, how he transitioned into working on quantum dots, and then he gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to attend a week-long Nobel Prize celebration. So you got your bachelor's from Harvard, yeah. correct? Had you done any astrochemistry adjacent anything at no. that point? So what led you to, to, to go work for Oka? It, what, was it not an interest in astrochemistry? Was it just an interest in doing really cool spectroscopy? What's the, what's the story there? So when I started at, a, at um, University of Chicago, I wanted mm. to be a theorist mm. to do statistical mechanics. Okay. So I did uh, polymer theory Okay. using renormalization group theory uh-huh. to do different kinds of polymers like electrostatic, you know, um, um, electrolyte, uh, electrolytes, uh, rigid rod, all sorts of more complicated polymer systems. Okay. And then um, after a couple years of doing that, um, I realized that in, um, that crowd was actually a European physicist crowd. Uh-huh. And they didn't really respect chemists, especially <laughs> American chemists. Okay. So all these conferences were dominated by these European physicists. Okay. Um, and I figured, you know, I'm not getting respected by these guys. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to get a job. <laughs> so, okay, great, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> a, you know, and... It's a good realization to have. Yeah, and I miss doing experiments. Okay. So, so you'd done experimental work in undergrad then? I had done a little bit of work with uh, Roy Gordon. Okay. When he had switched from being a theorist to an experimentalist. Okay. Just right then, so he was interested. So I don't know if you know Roy's history. I don't, know. Okay, so Roy was an extremely well-respected theorist. Okay. And then in 1975 or 76, um, 
whenever the uh, Carter administration was, in, was started, and we had this energy crisis, uh -huh. and he decided, I want to do good for the world. Okay. And I'm going to work on energy because okay. I'm smart and I think I can contribute. Uh -huh. So he shut down his theory part and uh, started being a, an experimentalist. Okay. Um, and he developed um, coatings. So he was looking for developing cheaper conductive electrodes for solar cells. Ah, okay. To uh, increase the efficiency or reduce losses. In yeah, the reduce losses projects. because all, those, all the solar cells at the time, and still somewhat today, use silver wires okay. which shadow the, the silicon. Okay. So your, your usable aperture is actually smaller than it should be. It okay. could be. So if you get rid of the wires uh -huh. and have something transparent instead, then you know you you gain a percent or two percent. You know everything which, counts, which is huge. Which is huge. Yep. Um, so that's when I started working for him. Okay. Uh, growing um, titania films and things like this. Okay. Um, it, it was a lab that he had inherited from somebody. I forget his name now. But the computer in the lab was the head of an ICBM. What? Yeah, you know, using paper tape. Yeah, yeah. To to, to program it. Oh. I didn't use that, but th <laughs> that was the computer that 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 group used before do, it got shut down. Do, do you have any idea how they got the head of an ICBM to use as their as their computer? I mean, it was defunct, right? Sure, but <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. They probably they didn't, there wasn't eBay back then, but there was something probably similar, you know, like some some U.S. government surplus auction. Exactly right. So you find funny things. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> I wonder if they still have it over there someplace. Oh, I'm sure it's long gone. Oh, long gone. That would have been incredible. Awesome. So anyway, so I did experiments then. Yep. And uh, and I had done some experiments doing NMR as a as a summer student at Purdue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like doing experiments, too. And I wanted to do spectroscopy because it was quantum mechanics, and I loved quantum mechanics. Uh -huh. I'd been doing statistical mechanics for, you know, two, two or three years. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had a NSF fellowship, which, unlike here, pays, you know, full freight, <laughs> or paid full freight, plus more, because uh -huh. University of Chicago gave you a four-year fellowship instead of a three if you came oh. with that. Wow. They supplemented it. Nice. Yeah. Jeez. And that meant you could do whatever you wanted. It means I could do whatever I wanted, yeah. right? And so I went to Carl Fried, and I said, you know, I'm missing theory, and I think I wanted to try some experiments. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. And I said, I want to work with Oka, because he's doing some really cool, really fundamental spectroscopy. Yep. I didn't really... And I, I, I knew that it was having to do with... Um, you know, ions mm -hmm. uh, relevant to interstellar space. And so I like the idea of too. I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, you make molecules in a, ga in a, in a um, discharge and then you find out what they are and then somebody can go and see them in interstellar space. And there are all these clouds of molecules out there that are huge. You know, they're just huge. It, it's impossible to comprehend. How big they are, yeah. right? <laughs> and there's all this chemistry going on in there, all these, all these weird molecules going on in there. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, this is really neat. And so I joined uh, Oka's Ion Factory. Awesome. Um, and um, then I started, you know, we started making all sorts of things, like CH3+, 
uh, HCN, HCN something plus, and then H3 plus, which he had been working on for a while. Yeah. You know, that was sort of his, his uh, go-to molecule. So I ended up um, doing a whole bunch of H3 plus scans. Nice. And so I, uh, you know, I contributed to making the system much more sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was, uh, you know, the, the, the group that, that, that was the competing group, let's say, was SACRI's group at Berkeley. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, then um, you know, we, I, we found all these lines, and I assigned a bunch of them, um, and it was really fun. And so my thesis ended up being both theory and experiment. Now, so on, on last month's episode, we actually did a brief review of H3+, plus, um, which I think could be very reasonably argued to be the most important molecule in the universe as far as chemistry is concerned, because it yes. starts everything, right? Exactly. But yeah. it's also so incredibly fundamental. You can, you can hardly dream of a simpler, more quantum mechanical system other than hydrogen atom or molecular hydrogen, sure. Yeah. So, so did that kind of... To tickle the itch to to still be doing some hardcore quantum mechanics yeah, as part of the Yeah, especially because uh, it's not a very, I mean, it has all these um, anahomonicities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not so easy to assign, as it turns out. Yeah, one, one would think it's just three protons in a triangle. How hard could it be, right? Yeah, but, uh, these two electrons, but there are all these weird motions as, as, you know, as they stretch, they become anharmonic, and, and then you have all this... Um, symmetry that you can deal with, you know, and, um, and so I learned a lot of really good um, uh, group theory. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Assigning all these spectra, <laughs> and it was really fun. And uh, a few years later, so I graduated in um, 88, and in the mid-90s, there was a comet that hit, that's, that um, broke in three pieces. Okay. And hit Jupiter. Do you remember that comet? I, I do. Well, uh, I, I don't remember it happening live, but I, I, I certainly know the one that you're talking about. Yes, I, and I'm yeah. blanking on the name of it. but Yeah, so it hit Jupiter in three spots, you okay. know, one after the other. Uh -huh. And since the atmosphere of Jupiter is all hydrogen, uh -huh. and there's a lot of energy in that explosion, uh -huh. it made a lot of H3+. Uh -huh. And my... Assignments of the spectra were used to calculate the energy that was released oh, no through kidding. the temperature. Oh, that's crazy! Of, uh, of the impact. That's okay. So uh, there was. Um, I'm, re I'm remembering my history right. I think because uh, I just talked about this last month. Um, but the the first detections of H three plus outside of Earth were, were made in Jupiter and Saturn. I, I think by mass spec earlier than that. But the those were mass spec. They weren't spectroscopic. So what you're saying here is, and, and I remember you did the vibrationally excited state spectra, right? Yeah, we're vibrational so states, yeah. This was so energetic and so hot that you could actually populate those levels and observe them spectroscopically from the impact and then calculate back calculate out the, the, the temperature. temperatures. Yeah, from the population. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, uh, of interest, I, I, I'm sure you saw, but the the CH3 plus that you worked on that was also just detected definitively okay. in space j just this last year. Cool. Um, for the first yeah. time, and uh, then there was this molecule cool. that we kept going after as a group, which uh -huh. were CH5 plus. Ah, uh, yes, that that is still vexing everybody to <laughs> to, to this day. <laughs> 
That it's, was, you know, every time we had a discharge with, with carbon and hydrogen or a methane discharge, basically, uh -huh. uh, we'd see these unknown lines and say, oh, could it be CH5 plus? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> was, was this in the, the Black Widow cell? Did that, uh, did, uh, had that been built at that point? So the, I don't know which one you call the Black Widow cell. There was one cell that was an amazing cell, mm -hmm. which was, you know, in inner, inner tube that yep. was the gas. Then there was uh, a middle tube where the uh, where you could fill it with liquid hydrogen. Okay. And the outer tube was vacuum. Okay. And it had a bunch of inlets that went through all the way to the inside. Uh huh. And because the thing was more than a meter long. Yep. Um, in order to uh, prevent, you know, cracking, the glass blower had put bellows, glass bellows, on it. Ah. Yep. And. Uh, and he spent a hundred hours making that cell, and it was an amazing piece of art. I'll bet you that is the one that was that, that has since been dubbed Black Widow. Yes. Um, Do you know how how it ended up being how it met its fate? Let's say. No. Uh, well, so if it, if that is the same one, then it uh, ended up in Ben McCall's lab for a little so while. So that was a previous I... one, then, ah, which was okay. much more complicated than Black Widow, I think. Ah, okay. because um, I don't think they ever remade that one. Okay. Because it was it, because the glass blower retired. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Um, so somebody made an oxygen discharge. Okay. Created ozone. Oh, no. Little white powder everywhere in the inner inner tube. Oh no! And then left for the day after at night. Oh. The liquid nitrogen level went down. Uh huh. And the ozone mechanical explosion. Oh, no. And we came back the next morning. It was gone. The the whole cell just the just whole just thing atomized. Was gone. Oh, and there were tiny pieces no. of glass everywhere. everywhere in the lab. Oh no. It was Jeez. this amazing, beautiful cell. Oh. Okay, okay. So that, that must have been Black Widow 1.0, we'll, we'll say yeah. Black Widow 1.0. Yeah. I mean, the, the outer diameter was about this big. It was so large. Oh, my goodness. So amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. So uh, you did eventually leave astrochemistry, though. Yeah. So, so what pulled you away from astrochemistry? So um, Oka nominated me for an AT&T fellowship. Okay. While I was there. Okay. Uh, which I got. And part of the opportunity was to spend a summer at Bell Labs. We, so th this was, I, I don't remember my corporate mergers very well, because Bell Labs used to be a major research institute. Yeah, it was still, it was still, it was on its way down, but it okay. was still part of AT&T. Okay. AT&T had been broken up uh -huh. into the baby Bells. Okay. And the baby Bells were contributing to the, to the fund, to the, budget for Bell Labs. Okay. But it was still part of AT&T. Okay. Uh, this was an agreement that, you know, AT&T had with the baby Bells and they would all get together and sort of fund Bell Labs. Interesting. Um, so that was 19, uh, 1988. That I, 1987, I uh -huh. spent a summer there. Okay. So I went to Oka and I said, you know, I, I have this opportunity to spend a summer there. Uh, do you mind? Mm -hmm. And he said, no. I don't mind, which sure. is really generous of him. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I met Lou Bruce. Okay. And I started working on quantum dots. Okay. Which we didn't call quantum dots at the time. What What did you call them at the time? Little particles. Literally, that's what you called them. Just little little yeah, particles. Little particles. Okay. <laughs> okay. Little particles. Um, 
think they wrote a patent called Articles from Particles. Wow. <laughs> At All one right. point. <laughs> I like it. And uh, so that summer I, um, I did some modeling some uh, uh, of the excited states. Mm -hmm. And I also started making core shell particles. Okay. Um, using you know, the room temperature synthesis that Mike Steigerwald and Lewis and Paul Rosados had developed in 86, 87, basically. Okay. I met Paul then, met the whole gang, and I discovered the kind of chemistry that I had no idea existed. Uh-huh. This was organometallic chemistry. I had uh -huh. no idea about it. Um, and actually... In summer, I didn't yet discover organic metallic chemistry. It was just the beginning of it. But I discovered, um, you know, all this visible light spectroscopy because I was doing infrared spectroscopy before. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, you know, visible light spectroscopy is really cool, too. It sure is. Absolutely. <laughs> and the lasers are amazing. You can see them. Uh -huh. <laughs> They're really powerful. You had pulse lasers. You had all sorts of things that didn't exist in the infrared. Uh -huh. You don't have to pull that little infrared card around to trace your beam path on the table. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the detectors were really simple, you know? Yeah. None of these cooled <laughs> IR detectors that cost a fortune that uh -huh. are not sensitive at all. They all run off of liquid nitrogen. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all silicon detectors. And there's the beginning of, um, of also diode array detectors. Oh, okay, okay. Which are now, you know... Everywhere. Everywhere, right? So now we use cameras everywhere, CCD cameras. and um, so, um, so I discovered that world of Bell Labs mm -hmm. and in the incredibly interdisciplinary world of Bell Labs. And they're really thinking about applications as well as fundamental science, you know, full of physicists that they were actually friendly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Condensed matter physicists. They, and then... Um, so it was an amazing time. That mm -hmm. summer was an amazing time. And so when I went to look for a postdoc, um, I decided, first I thought I wanted to do ultrafast spectroscopy. Okay. But after, you know, looking at different groups, including going back and interviewing at Bell Labs, mm -hmm. um, in Bill Green's, not Bill Green's, it was, uh, what was his name? Something Green who was doing ultrafast spectroscopy. Lewis also offered me a postdoc, and um, then I took it, and I went back to work for him as a postdoc. Awesome, awesome. I mean, uh, clearly that decision has worked out well for yeah. you. But I have to say, <laughs> part of the reason was because I also felt like um, the field of small molecule ion spectroscopy um, was uh, pretty crowded. Mm. It felt to me, and um, the uh, quantum mechanics part of it, although beautiful, was fairly established. Mm -hmm. um, the theorists could basically tell you where to find things pretty well, uh -huh. and you just went and found them. Sure. Um, and there was something about that that was really cool, but also a little bit... Um, missing for me. You know, mm -hmm. There was something that was a little bit missing for me. And the, the field of nanoparticles at the time, everything was new. Sure. So, you know, any question you asked, nobody knew the answer. And the <laughs> theory, because it's such a complicated system, the theory could explain anything that you found, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> even, if it was, even if it was wrong. 
Jeez. Oh, <laughs> well, it, it, it seems like almost a natural choice based on what you had done before, right? Because you had worked on, on growing particles before in undergrad to a degree, right? You've been yeah. growing those films, right? So, yeah. so that was great. Uh, you had worked on spectroscopic investigations before, infrared, different than visible, but it's still, you're going to be doing spectroscopy with these, yeah. these tiny particles, Absolutely. right? And There's simple, quantum mechanics, and, of and course, involved. And this was simple quantum mechanics. It's exactly. beautiful quantum mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you have the opportunity then to, to bridge both from the single particle up to the ensemble with statistical mechanics at that point, too, right? Yeah. Treating these things either as single nanoparticles or operating in a, in a group. So. Yeah. That's kind of an incredible bringing everything that you had worked on. To yeah, that the only thing that was missing is I didn't know any chemistry, oh. but I, I learned <laughs> as a postdoc. Oh, that's amazing! I learned. Uh, so Mike Steigerwald taught taught me everything I know about uh, organometallic chemistry. Okay. Um, and so then I had the beginner's luck, you know, with it basically because I didn't know any better, so I used things that normal chemists wouldn't actually use as solvents. I used them as solvents mm -hmm. because, you know, but they were reagents, but <laughs> it turned out that it worked. <laughs> but if it turns out it works, it turns out it works. That's yeah. great. So, sometimes having a, not just it, a different perspective, but a, a perspective where you don't know all of the the, the pre-established right way to do things is, a, is right. a great way to do something, yeah. right? I didn't have any preconceived notions. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, but how's it been going with Quantum Dots since then? Pretty well, I yeah. Would say. yeah. <laughs> so, so we're actually chatting here maybe a, a week or so after you you just got back from from the Nobel ceremony, right? Yeah. Um, and and he said they've been running you ragged over there. So can you give us just the the inside scoop? What 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 do they have you doing for ten days straight? So, um, I had to go to three embassies for. Receptions. Three different embassies. Yeah. Wh which three, if you don't mind saying? The American embassy, okay. which was a huge thing. Okay. Um, the French embassy, which was a little smaller. It was uh -huh. a sit-down lunch, you know, excellent. Uh -huh. And then the Tunisian embassy, which is, was much a, a much smaller event. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was one thing. And then um, I went to visit uh, a school, a high school, and I went to visit Uppsala University uh -huh. to give talks there. I talked to um, a Danish astronaut on the space station. Oh, no kidding. Live in front of, you know, at the museum. Uh-huh. Um, what else did I do? They were, well, d December 10th was the big day mm -hmm. where you have the rehearsal in the morning, then the prize ceremony in the afternoon, uh -huh. and then the big banquet with 1,300 people, oh my and then the dancing after that, and then the after party. Um, and then the day after, there was the royal banquet, which was a smaller event at the royal palace with oh, the geez. royal family. Okay. Uh, 170 people. And, that, that's uh, slightly more manageable than, than uh, the previous day. <laughs> so the first banquet I sat next to the uh, crown princess, crown princess Victoria. Uh -huh. The second banquet, it was supposed to be, you know, the royal family inviting you to their house. Okay. So we had a little... The laureates and their guests, other spouses, basically were partners. I, I actually came with my daughter because my my wife was not feeling well that mm -hmm. night. Um, so a little get together with the royals and the laureates. You know, sure, so we chat with the king, as you do. <laughs> the king and the prince, Prince uh, Philip, Prince Daniel, 
and uh, you know just chit chat for a little bit and you go to the banquet and I sit next to the queen on one side and princess Sophia on the other side who's the wife of the of the middle son I think of the of the king okay um, and you chit chat and then then after the after the and also the so one of the courses of venison which had been shot by the king oh no. <laughs> on a royal hunt on a royal hunt wow. yes wow <laughs> and at, at the little get-together before, he had explained to us how he's very particular about how the meat is cut after it's cooked. Okay. And that the previous year it had not been done correctly. And so this year he, ah. he made sure that it was going to get cut correctly. <laughs> wow. Which was great. Awesome. And it, it turned out to be really excellent, really, really amazing. Um, and then you have a little afternoon get-together uh -huh. with the royals again and in this big room. Everybody else is on one side, and we are chatting. And then after a while, you know, some royal chamberlains come and escort you back to the crowd, so that's not, so they have a chance to talk to other people. Uh huh. So that was another night. Wow. Um, then I went to another ball, and this was an undergraduate ball the last okay. night, called the Lucia Ball. Um, Santa Lucia is a big um, holiday in Sweden. It's the holiday okay. of lights, uh -huh. and the undergraduates have this celebration, this ball for their undergraduate leaders at uh, Stockholm University. Uh -huh. So I was there with my daughter and the president of Stockholm University, but otherwise it was all students pretty much. And they, it's an evening of uh, eating, drinking, and singing. Wow! <laughs> and I was inducted into the into the uh, uh, be I became a knight of the order of the Ever smiling and ever jumping, the green frog. <laughs> I think I have the. No, I don't have it here. That, so that's I, an I have a medallion. awful lot of letters to add to the, the postscript on your <laughs> signature there. <laughs> so that was fun. So you know, that's just a few things. Then, mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. And one after and what? And no, no wonder you're tired. That's uh, that. That sounds like a fantastic time, though. Yeah. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat yeah. with us today. Thanks for contributing to the history of astrochemistry before going off to change the world and our understanding of quantum dots. Yeah, but, uh, I, you know, astrochemistry has changed radically since I was a graduate student. Oh? Yeah. D d but before we sign off, do you want to say how? Well, you know, the molecules that you guys are discovering are just amazing. I think the tools, you know, the tools that are available now are incredible compared to what they were in 1985, sure. Say, yeah, yeah. There certainly have been some some leaps in technology. Yeah, I mean, just the CCD cameras that you can use now for the telescopes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just amazing. The sensitivity, the 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 um, the arrays mm. that uh, yep. you use, and then the then the understanding of the chemistry is just uh, to me, um, to me right now, the field is undergoing a second. Um, uh, rebirth in a way, I feel it, from the outside now. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're totally right. And and actually, it's something we're going to have to almost struggle with in the coming years, where we become go from data poor to uh, now FTE poor. Right? Yeah, exactly. Way more data than we have time to to actually 
combs or it's, it's all about developing new tech uh, new tools for analyzing this data and, and thinking yeah. about it in an intelligent way and yeah. sifting through it just kind of incredible yeah um, a lot of those advances by the way were actually catalyzed by work at Bell Labs so Bell Labs contributed back in its heyday to a, a, a bunch of the the new technology <coughs> for both radio astronomy and for infrared and optical astronomy yeah um, it was a it's a really important uh, institution yeah. and in fact I think some of the uh, new molecule discoveries were actually made either using a Bell Labs radio telescope or, or by researchers at Bell Labs in the in the 70s and 80s that's it's a piece of history right there yeah yeah excellent all right well thanks for chatting and sure. uh, happy new year happy new year to you Brad Congratulations again to Professor Bowendy. If you'd like to hear more from him about the specifics of his work on quantum dots, we'll have a link to his Nobel Prize lecture in our show notes and on the website. It's amazing how quickly you can make that. This is the Barista Boot Camp, where we walk you through the basic recipes for making our favorite interstellar molecules. Today's recipe is for silicon monoxide, SIO, and specifically its formation in interstellar shocks. You probably know SIO as the prototypical shock tracer molecule, but why that is comes down to the recipe for making this molecule in these particular environments. So let's get to it. Now, the definitive source for this recipe comes from Shilka et al. 1997, and of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to that paper. You start with silicon-rich dust grains, just minding their own business when a shockwave passes through. The ices from the grains are sublimated, of course, and then the grains themselves begin to be ground down and destroyed, releasing their contents into the gas phase. Now, some SIO is thought to be present in the grains themselves and can be directly released into the gas phase this way. But perhaps more importantly, atomic silicon is also released. Now, once in the gas phase, the atomic silicon can quickly react with abundant oxygen-bearing species like OH and molecular oxygen to form SIO. So far, so good, but that's actually not what makes the SIO such a good shock tracer. SIO continues to rapidly react with oxygen, forming SIO2, which eventually crashes back out into the solid phase. Because the SIO was only formed from the SI produced by the shock and then is quickly destroyed to form SIO2, once the shock passes and stops making that atomic silicon to make SIO, then the SIO abundance drops like a rock. It's this rapid buildup and then drop off that makes SIO such a powerful shock tracer. Its presence indicates not just that a shock went through it sometime in the past, but that it went through extremely recently. Because if it had gone through a long time ago, all of that SIO would be gone and reacted into SIO2. Taking a look at the chalkboard this month, there's an opening for a UK PhD student with Julia Lehman probing astrochemical reactions with laser spectroscopy. Now, the position is to start in October of 2024, and applications are accepted, as it says, year-round. There's an open PhD position at the Open University in the UK in the group of Helen Fraser, uh, untangling ice, dust, and gas astrochemistry with JWST ice mapping. The position is also for a start in October of 2024, and the deadline for applications appears to be January 25th. 
Now, in that same group, also working on JWST observations, there's an open for a postdoc with a term of up to three years. The target start date for that is in March 2024, and applications are due the 8th of January, so just a few days after this episode drops. In terms of conferences, nothing new on the chalkboard, but we'll remind you of what we have. First up is the early phase of star formation to be held the 12th to the 17th of May 2024 in Ringberg Castle in Germany. Registration opens 1st of January 2024 and is free, but it's only open until the 31st of January. There are many available slots for contributed talks. Next up, we have Raising the Veil on Star Formation Near and Far, which is being held in honor of Richard Hills in person, April 22 to the 26th of 2024 at the Kavli Institute for Cosmology in Cambridge. In-person participation will be limited to 100 people with a registration fee of 200 British pounds, but remote participation is going to be available with no fee. And topics include star formation in our galaxy from the ISM via pre-stellar cores, astrochemistry and star formation tracers, star formation in nearby galaxies, primeval galaxies, and cosmic evolution, prospects from future facilities. It looks like abstract submissions closed the 30th of November, but registration is available until the 31st of January. The Quantum Grain Workshop, Emerging Horizons in the Chemistry of the Universe, was also announced uh, last month, I think it was, and will convene in Barcelona June 9th to the 12th of 2024, save the date. Uh, There's a website up, uh, more information will be posted there when it becomes available. The Promises and Challenges of the ALMA Wideband Sensitivity Upgrade is going to be held June 24th to the 28th in uh, Garching, Germany at ESO. The WSU will make enormous advances in the capabilities of ALMA for broadband spectral line observations and is particularly impactful for astrochemistry. The abstract deadline will be the 1st of March of next year with registration uh, due by the 1st of May. In-person attendance is going to be strongly encouraged, but remote participation will be possible. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings and job opportunities from today's episode on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. If you have ideas for the grab-and-go or double shot or general thoughts or comments, just get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. Special thanks today to Adam Ginsberg for suggesting the Barista Bootcamp segment and to ChatGPT for helping write today's ad copies. The audio transition for the Barista Bootcamp is a clip of Julia Child from Season 1, Episode 12 of the French Chef, Chicken Livers a la Française. Until next time, stay safe and keep your heads in the molecular clouds. <laughs>